Well, as always, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see each of you here this morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn back in the book of Revelation to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation, the 7th chapter, we will continue in our exposition of the Word of God here this morning. And what we will see in this passage of Scripture, I think, is something very exciting. We shall see that throughout human history, and even in the most difficult times in human history, God will have a people who He has set aside for His service, number one, and God will have a people whom He has saved, even in the midst of great trial and tribulation. God will always have a people. And aren't you glad to know this morning that you are part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Amen. Through faith in Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your past may be, Jesus Christ is the great Savior of sinners, incorporates you into the people of God. And as the people of God, we have the great privilege of worshiping God Almighty. Well, this passage of Scripture will set all this before us here this morning. So let's take our Bibles and we'll read the entire seventh chapter together. So Revelation, the seventh chapter, and let us hear about our great God and our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter seven, please hear the word of God. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Aser were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. After this, I be, excuse me, after this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds of people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, 
neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There are certain passages of Scripture that you almost hesitate to preach from because just reading them sets before you a glory that really is worth just contemplating and thinking about all by itself. But I am here this morning to open up to you the Word of God. And what I want to do in this passage of Scripture is I want to set before, as I said, this great truth that God will always have a people whom He has prepared for His service, number one, and God will always have a people whom He has saved and who will worship Him eternally. This is a blessed truth. And everything by way of the, the chronology of the book of Revelation and the theology of the book of Revelation and what's happening in the seventh chapter are all very, very important to us. And we want to address these in some way. But what I really want to do this morning is I want to set before you this great God, your God, who loves you and saves you in Jesus Christ. I want to set him before you and I want you to see how he has sovereign control over all things. He commands these angels to hold back judgment. I want you to see how he prepares those to serve him, that 144,000 Jewish males, of each 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel for service. I want you to see the great multitude that gather before him and then even angels gathering together to join in the worship of the, uh, of the people of God. This is a wonderful chapter. And then I hope to close out by showing to you the great comfort and great blessing that belong to the people of God. Did you see at the end of that chapter, Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of his people? Did you see the fulfillment of everything that was promised there in that 23rd Psalm? Did you see Jesus Christ again tenderly shepherding his people? That belongs to you. Even in the, even in the midst of, the, of earth's most difficult times, that belongs to you. And then finally, did you see God the Father Almighty? taking those whom he has redeemed through Jesus Christ and wiping away every tear from their eye. Oh, the blessedness of this passage of Scripture. And as I said, while there is much by way of how we have to set forth the chronology and the theology of Revelation, the, the entire book of Revelation, but particularly here, Revelation chapter 7, I want to, if I can, I want to deal with the details of the text. But by the grace of God, I want to bring you, I want to elevate you above the text to look down on the text and look up and see God Almighty. And I want joy and rejoicing to, to ascend from your hearts. And hopefully by the grace of God and with his assistance, I'll be able to do that here today. Well, again, let me just give you a little bit of a review of what we've done in, the, in these past few weeks. I'll not go over by chapters 1 through 3. We've reviewed them uh, enough uh, here in, in, our, in our time together. But I do want to set before you uh, chapters uh, 5, I'm sorry, chapters 4 uh, through 6 by way of review because I think that helps us to set in our minds what we are about to participate in in this uh, passage of Scripture. You remember there in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John was taken in a vision into heaven. And do you remember that the first thing that he saw? What was the first thing that John saw when he was taken into heaven? He saw God on his throne. And I want you to know and understand that that is the way in which you should, be, you should understand. You should have the perspective of that on everything. That the first thing that you should see in all things is God on his throne. Isn't that a wonderful way to approach life? Isn't that a wonderful way to, to engage the day that God has given you? Isn't that a wonderful way to plan your future? That God is on his throne. And when John was taken in the heaven, what did he see? He didn't see chaos. 
He didn't see confusion. He saw God Almighty on his throne. And I'm saying to you, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must have that same kind of perspective on all of life. God is on his throne. And do you remember what happened there in, in, uh, in chapter 5? In chapter 5, again, there was that great scene. God the Father was on his throne and he held that scroll, that book. And you remember what we said about that book, that scroll, that scroll of human destiny, that book that contains the decree of God to overcome evil and to exalt his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as king of kings and lord of lords and bring eternal blessings upon his people. It was that book. And that book was in the hand of, of God the Father. And you remember how the mighty angel, the, the mighty angel looked to and fro above the earth, below the earth, and around the earth, and no one was worthy to take the book except the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came forth. I want you to know and understand this is another perspective you and I need to have, that the book of God, the purposes of God, the decrees of God are in the hand of Jesus Christ, and he is worthy to open the scrolls, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords, shall bring the pass all that the Father has determined. Oh, do you see a way that we, do, we see, do you see the way that the Christian church approaches life? We look around us and we get befuddled, don't we? We look around us and we get unnerved. We see the things that are going on and we think, oh, why is this happening to me and why that? Oh, but to see God on his throne and Christ in control of, of, the, of the decree of God. This is a great and exciting thing to see. And then there in that sixth chapter, what did we see? Well, you remember in the sixth chapter, I said at this point, I, I didn't mention this last week. I thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary on, on Revelation says that, you know, that as we get into, uh, into Revelation chapter 6, you know, it, we're kind of like paralleling that, uh, that scene that we see in Ezekiel where the river of God gets deeper and deeper. And Matthew Henry was saying that as we get into these chapters now, the book of Revelation, things get deep here. And we need to, we need to proceed with caution. We need to have a vision of Christ and a vision of the, of, of the sovereign purposes of God over all things. And this is how we'll be able to be guided through these, uh, uh, this book. But again, Matthew Henry was bringing out that in the sixth chapter, things began to get somewhat difficult for us to interpret. And one of the ways that I, uh, that I approach this book of Revelation, I tried to bring this out last week, is that from my perspective, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ taking this seven-sealed book from the hand of the Father, he is now unfolding the last days of human history. I see, again, that seven-sealed book and it be, and being opened by the Lord Jesus Christ as having a reference not so much to human history in its totality, but really human history in its final act, we might say, before God totally, uh, totally does away with the influence of evil and evil itself and enthrones Christ as Lord over all in a visible, manifest way and brings eternal blessings to the people of God. So in a sense, what am I saying? I'm saying that I believe that in Revelation chapter 6, we have the beginning of the tribulation opened up for us. Now, good men... Good brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, may see this a little different, but I'm going to proceed along, this, uh, along these lines. And you remember how those seals opened up. The first four seals, again, dealt with those four horsemen of the apocalypse. There we saw, again, a false peace that was given to the world. I understand it by way of Antichrist. There we saw war. We saw famine. We saw economic hardship. We saw death. All these things. After that, we saw the martyred, the, we saw the martyred souls in heaven, again, who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ and for, the, and for their faithfulness to the word of God. And then that sixth seal, you might remember, we saw, again, this great woe coming upon humanity for the great day of the wrath of the Lamb had come. And who shall be able to stand? That was the question of verses 15 through 17 of Revelation chapter 6. And what's interesting is that almost 
almost, uh, almost without question, uh, commentators look at this seventh chapter as something, uh, uh, as something of an interlude between the sixth seal that was opened at the end of chapter six and the seventh seal that will be opened in chapter eight. And there's something of an interlude here. And again, most of the commentators, and I agree with them, they, they make this point that in this interlude, what we are seeing is God's pause in judgment on sinful humanity in order that in the very day of wrath, he might show mercy. Is it, and isn't that just like our God? In wrath, he remembers mercy. Again, to see this over and over again in Scripture, again, uh, the great passage of Scripture uh, from Habakkuk uh, brings this out. Uh, that God in, in wrath remembers mercy. And it shows to us that God is a saving God. His intentions are to bring about eternal blessing to his people. God is a saving God. And that's why when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, what is the great testimony of the Spirit of God and of the church of Christ? The great testimony is found in verse 17 of Revelation 22. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And he that heareth say, Come. And, help, and let him, and let him that, is a, that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. When you come through a, a, a series of sermons on the book of Revelation, what, what should be your, the conclusion of it all? It should be to tell the gospel far and wide. It shouldn't be to go hide somewhere. It shouldn't be to walk around in continual fear. It should be to proclaim the saving purposes of God. Because again, as, as, as you read through this book of Revelation and you come to an end, what is the great proclamation that's made? That God is a saving God. I think of a passage of scripture, and we've quoted it a number of times here. It's a beautiful passage of scripture taken again from the book of Isaiah. And did you notice in that 60th chapter how many of the themes in that 60th chapter uh, are related throughout the book of Revelation? They're there. But in, the, in, in Isaiah chapter 44, I'm sorry, 45, verse 22, the great evangelistic text, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. Many of you might know it was the passage of scripture under which Charles, uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon was converted. But when you look at that 45th chapter, there is a sense where God is being set forth by way of a, if I can say it this way, of an image of, of crying out aloud. This idea of look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, is not look unto me. It is God declaring in all, in, with, with, all, with all force, look unto me. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's in a sense of as if he cries out for the world to look unto him to be saved. God is a saving God. And, and against the backdrop of, of tribulation and trial and in the backdrop of God's judgment against sin, you must know that God is a saving God and he will save you, you see. You say, well, you don't know, I don't know, I don't know what you've done. You don't know what I've done, but I know God knows and God will save you. God will save every sinner who looks to him through faith in Jesus Christ. And so our God is a saving God. And so what I want to do here this morning is I want to take a look at this passage of Scripture. Very easy to see that when we look at the passage and read it, that there are essentially two groups of people being spoken of here. There are the 144,000, and then there is the innumerable multitude. We also have references to angels. We're not going to get into the angels so much this morning. But through these two groups, what I want you to see, I want you to, we have to understand who these groups are and the scope of the book of Revelation. It's important. This 144,000 will reappear in the 14th chapter. This innumerable multitude, we'll see it all the way through the book of Revelation. And what I want you to see is that while these things, these, these, these two groups are specific and there are details that we must consider concerning them, if I can, as I said earlier, 
let's take let's let's look at them and then let's elevate our eyes and our thinking and let's think of what truths this presents to us if god even in the worst times of human history has a prepared a sealed and set apart people to serve him doesn't he have a sealed and set apart people to serve him today if he has those who from every corner of the world are coming to faith in Jesus Christ on in that time of, of, of tribulation, does he not have a people here today that are saved? And the thing that I want to press upon you is this. If God always has a people who, were, who will serve him, the question I ask you is this. Will we be that people in this day? And that day he'll have the 144,000. We know that with guarantee. But in this day, will he have this little congregation to serve him? And that day, there will be a great multitude from every, from every corner of the world. But what about in this day? In this day, will he have a saved people who will worship and sing praises to his name? And I believe that he will have that. I believe he does have that. And if you're here this morning and you don't know about your, your, your standing with God Almighty, one of the great blessings upon this innumerable multitude is that they stand before the throne. Who can, in the question of, 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 of chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, is who can stand before him? Chapter 7 answers that question. Those who are sealed and prepared by God can stand before him. Those who have their robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb can stand before him. And I ask you the question, have your sins been washed in the blood of the Lamb? You see, it is this, it is, it, 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 it is this, it is this, it is this means of salvation through the shedding of blood, the innocent Lamb of God, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, through his shedding of his blood, and through the reception of that by faith that saves the soul. We have the beautiful table of our Lord here this, uh, this morning and, 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 and at the proper time. I will invite you to come to the table of the Lord. But I want you to know and understand by way of the table of the Lord. You've heard me say it so many times. This is the Lord's table. He sets the parameters for this table. And the parameters for this table are to be washed in his blood. Are you washed in the blood? We can sing the song right now. Could we not? But I ask you the question. Have your sins been purged and made clean in the blood of the Lamb? Oh, and if not, why not come to this one? You see, the Bible tells us, it teaches us, it shows us that God will have an innumerable multitude. Will you be among that multitude? I hope and I pray that you will be. And so by God's grace, what I hope to do by way of a proposition, by way of a doctrine is the following. Number one, I want you to see that God will always have a people on earth and in heaven who will serve and worship him. God will always have. We might think that, we're, we might think that there's none less, no one left but us. We might think that here we are in this little corner of East Ham and we're the only church preaching the gospel. It ain't so. <laughs> it ain't so. Who cares about the grammar right now? <laughs> Secondly, I want you to understand this. Even in the most trying time of human history, God will still have a people. I'm convinced again by way of the flow of the book of Revelation. We're in that time known as the tribulation. And even in that time, God will still have a people. Even in the time of the most severe persecution and opposition, God will still be saving a people. The question that faces us then is this. Will we be that people in our day? Will we, be, will we be that saved people and will, will we be that serving people? So what I want to do by God's grace here today is I want to take a look at the passage of Scripture. Basically, again, there are at least three points. Number one, I want you to see from this passage of Scripture how the God Almighty has sovereign control over all things that happen in His creation. 
God exercises sovereign control. We'll see that in this passage of scripture. The second thing I want you to see is that God has a, a people who he has set apart to serve him. We're going to take a look at how he does that and what that means for the flow of the context of uh, the book of Revelation. Thirdly, I want you to see that God has a saved people. And this saved people, this group, this, this, this group of this eternally blessed people, we're going to see that there are things particular to that group, not least of which is they have Jesus Christ shepherding them throughout eternity. It's beautiful. Jesus Christ, again, in this passage of Scripture, maybe I should have, maybe I should have had excuse me, Rick read, uh, read from, uh, from Psalm 23 because there's so much of Psalm 23 that's fulfilled in this passage of Scripture. Well, these, at least these three things then. And let's take a look then at the first thing that we have here that I want you to pay, give attention to. And that is, number one, that God will always be sovereign in the control of the things that happen on earth and in the created order. To make that point, let's look at, verse, uh, let's look at uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And notice what we have here. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow nor uh, on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. What I want you to see and understand here is that what we are seeing kind of communicated to us uh, by way, uh, not so much by way of the detail, but by way of a general category, category is the fact that God has control over things that happen on the earth. We might think that the blowing of the wind is just as natural and just as easy and there's no real uh, divine intervention or, or, or divine uh, uh, process involved, but that's not so. Even the very winds are controlled by a sovereign God. This God who has created all things has control over all things. And what I want you to see and understand from this passage of scripture right here, God is exercising sovereign control in order that he might give space for sinners to come home, to come to him. It's beautiful, isn't it? That he might have space to prepare a, a, a body of men uh, for the ministry that he has laid out for them. And so I want you to see that God has sovereign control over his creation. This is important for us to realize, especially when we consider the large scope of this book of Revelation, the large scope of human history, the questions that confront humanity. Where will this world, where, well, what, what will be the end of this world? Is there an end? What will happen to this great, uh, to, the, to this uh, thing that we know as humanity and, and life on the earth? What will happen? Will, will it just be destroyed by people gone mad? No, a thousand times no. You see, God is in sovereign control. And I want you to know and I want you to understand that as you, if you were to trace out the theme of the book of Revelation, what you would see is the reassertion over and over again of God's authority over his creation and his purpose to do away with moral evil in his, in his universe and to enthrone righteousness in and through the person of Christ and to provide eternal blessing for the people of God. These, tr these truths and this reality is so, is so large and so encompassing that there are people, unbelievers, who are willing to write this all off and leave us in despair, but we'll have none of it. There is a sovereign God who controls all things. And we see it over and over again, not only on the pages of Scripture, but we see it in history as well. We think of a passage of Scripture, a beautiful passage of Scripture. In one way, one of the primary passages of Scripture concerning human history. You, In one sense, you can do no better for a philosophy of history than Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? For the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and let us cast away their cords from us. 
You see, this is so much what, by way of what we're, we're, we're human ingenuity and where, you, where, where the intelligence of fallen man is, is leading to. It's a, it's a doing away with any kind of quote-unquote restriction that a sovereign God might have on them. This idea of being imposed upon by a moral order that man hasn't agreed to. And God says, you can fight against it all you want, but I, I have declared the decree. I will set my king upon, his holy, uh, upon my holy hill. And again, all of human history is leading to the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Lord over all things. And he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings now. But there is coming a time by way of the manifestation of this book of Revelation when that shall be manifestly made known. We see this again in, in the book of Revelation by way of confirming testimony. Revelation chapter 11 to 15. Beautiful passage of scripture. You know the passage of scripture. You might think, Pastor, how, do I, how can you say you know the passage of scripture when you've not even read it? When I read it, you'll know it. Revelation eleven fifteen, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And whether you sing it at Christmas time or whether you declare it here on this Lord's Day morning, it's true. The kingdoms of this earth are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. It's kind of interesting. I'll not get into this uh, to, any, to any kind of detail right now, but one of the questions that kind of underlies study of the book of Revelation is the question are the are, are the seals and then the trumpets and then the uh, and then the bold judgments do they are they running consecutively and in a telescoping way or are they or, or are they reiterating or, or or coming back coming to uh, coming to a, a high point stopping and then coming back coming to a high point so what you have is you have the outflow of human history from three different perspectives a lot of good argumentation can be made for that view. I, I do hold the view that it's more telescopic, that we see progress here. But here in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, there is a, there is a capstone, as, as, as it were, a high point that we reach. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received their mark in their foreheads and in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. You see, one of the things that it's hard for us to understand this, it's hard for us to get our heads around this, it's hard for us to, to fully embrace this, but we must. How can I say this? Evil men, oh, Lord, give me grace here. Evil men may be able to take your head from off your shoulder. It's very, very graphic. I hate to say this for young people that are here. Evil men may do that, but evil men cannot take faith, your faith in Jesus Christ, out of your soul. And that's what makes you, that's what makes you the victor here. These ones, they were beheaded for the cause of Jesus Christ, but where were they? They weren't in some heap of, of bones that will one day be discovered. They were living and reigning with Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you, the great challenge in the, for, for the church of Jesus Christ, the great challenge for every professing the believer, for every professing the believer, is to hold on to faith in Jesus Christ and remember at the same time that you're being held by Him. It is Christ's keeping power that kept these ones. So Revelation chapter 20, again, this reigning with Christ. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and four, verses three through 5. And there shall be no more curse. Remember I said moral evil shall be done away. There shall be no more curse. 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. This is the blessed, this is the blessed, the reality of what's, that's called, what's called theologically of the beatific vision. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, nor, nor need of candle, neither the light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign with him forever and ever. The purposes of God shall not be thwarted. God is sovereign over all of his creation. And when we see these four angels being held back from allowing the winds, to, from holding back the winds of the, uh, of the earth, we see God's sovereign control in creation. And by way of the perspective of the book of Revelation, we see God's sovereign control over all things. One writer says this concerning the book of Revelation and its, and its content. He says, the message of the book of Revelation is that Jesus Christ has defeated Satan on the cross and one day will destroy him altogether. And the purpose, again, is clear. And, and what this writer deduces from that is two things. Number one, we should resist the devil and all of his advances. Why? Because he's a defeated foe. And number two, we should proclaim that we, we should continually proclaim the victory of God in Jesus Christ. And so all of these things we see here in this, in this one verse, holding back the wind, control, sovereign control over everything that happens in creation. Or you remember I said before, most commentators see this, this seventh chapter as an interlude, uh, a time of pause to give opportunity for salvation. Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Isn't that our prayer? In the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. What a prayer to have on our lips. Listen to Psalm 78, verse 38. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time he turned. Yet, yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all of his wrath. That's your God, you understand. I don't know where your conscience is right now this morning. I don't know if you're plagued with past sins. I don't know what's going through your mind, but you need to hear this right now about your God and your Savior Jesus Christ. He has not stirred himself to wrath. He is he's full of compassion. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 32 you may be going through a situation where you feel you're under some kind of you're under some kind of discipline for your sin I want you to hear about God's mercy yet Lamentations chapter 3 verse 32 and you and you know the people of Judah were under severe chastisement because of sin but listen to what Jeremiah in faith was able to say but though he caused grief yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies you never run from this God who chastens you for sin. Why? Because in him is a multitude of mercies. You run away from him. You run away from the very source and the very, and the, and the very means of, of finding mercy. And so again, this is why I say over and over again, what does faith do? What, how does it work in our hearts? It creates this, 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 this tenacity, this, this holding on, this holding on that when we look, we see it's not in our own strength. We see it's in the strength of the Spirit of God, that God is holding us. And so I call you to, no matter what your circumstances are here this morning, oh, look to this one who has not only sovereign control of all things, but who in wrath remembers mercy. So that's the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture. The second thing I want you to see in this passage of Scripture is that God will always have a people whom he has prepared to serve him. He will seal them. He will specify who they are. He will give them specific tasks. Look there in Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have, we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. 
You remember that passage of scripture that Rick read this morning by way of the opening passage there in Ezekiel chapter 9. God was sending an angel through the city of Judah to do what? To put a seal on the foreheads of those who moaned over the sins of society. If God were doing that thing today, and in one sense I believe that he is, would he be able to put a mark on our foreheads for moaning over the sins of society? Or would he find within us a going along peacefully with the sins of society? What do you see within us? Maybe we recognize our inability to, to maybe do anything what we would consider significant. Does he at least see a groaning and moaning in our souls over sin? I'm saying to you, this is the basis on which this seal was placed on the, this 144,000. And I want you to see again what, I'm, what am I saying? God, God, God is able to seal. This idea of a seal is very important. It's, it speaks about God's protection. It speaks about God's purpose being fulfilled and those who are sealed. Do you know you are sealed with the Spirit of God? book of Ephesians tells us this. You're, by, by, by way of, the, by way of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and by way of the blood of Christ, there has been a spiritual seal set upon you. You are set apart for the purposes of God. Why should we live our lives with, with such a low focus and such a low goal? Shouldn't our thoughts and our minds be elevated to the glory of serving the living God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? And so God will always have a people prepared for His service. And also by way of this seal, if you see here in the passage of Scripture, it's protection from the wrath that is to come. This is an amazing thing. These 144,000, they will be there and they will be serving God. They will be protected from His wrath. Now this brings us to the question, who are these 144,000? Well, again, it's one of these places where when you study the book of Revelation, you hate to say it, but there are all kinds of answers given. Some people think that this is the entirety of the people of God. Some people think that this is uh, uh, the entirety of, uh, of the nation of Israel. They, they tell us that, uh, that, the, uh, that, the, the, that the numbers there, 12,000, 144,000, are symbolic. No, don't get me wrong. The, the, the book of Revelation incorporates symbolism. It does. And we have to know how to handle the symbolism of the book of Revelation. But, there are, but, but to say that the book of Revelation contains symbols doesn't mean of necessity that every number is symbolic. And I would suggest to you in this passage of scripture, these numbers are not symbolic. I would suggest to you instead that these numbers are to be taken as we see them. That God will set apart for himself 144 Jewish males to bring about the message of the gospel in times of great tribulation. It gives us a little bit of pause. How will this happen? We know and we understand that uh, today, uh, I don't know of any Jew uh, who said they know of what tribe they are from, but this, this elect people, this people whom God has purposely set apart and set his seal upon, they will bring about his will <clears throat> in times of great difficulty and times of great trial and trouble. These men are very significant men. We will learn about them more in Revelation chapter 14, but we can say this about them in regard, of, in regard to Revelation chapter 14. We can, say, we can say this about them. Number one, that these are men who have maintained sexual purity in a day and age or in a time of human history when sexual impurity has become the norm and in a sense <clears throat> that, which, that which is enshrined and that which is encouraged. These men have remained pure. Why do I make this point? Well, in Revelation chapter 9, we will see at the end of the chapter, Revelation chapter 9, and we'll probably use this 21st verse when we get to the ninth chapter of Revelation to be our controlling theme. In Revelation chapter 9, after the trumpet judgments, or in the process of the trumpet judgments, we read the following. 
neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. It's an amazing, it's a shocking thing to see that in the midst of the actual judgments of God upon sin, sinners refuse to repent of those sins. But these men, these 144,000, they've kept themselves pure in a time when impurity was enthroned and kind of, and kind of encouraged. And these men have kept themselves pure. It's what the scripture says. Again, we see uh, again in uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 that brings this up. The next thing that we see in Revelation chapter 14 concerning these men is that these were men, these were honest men of integrity. What, what, what wonderful, what beautiful qualifications to preach the word of God. Men of integrity and men, as the scripture says, in whose mouth was no lie. And it goes on to say that these men were blameless. So they were, they were honest men. They were men of integrity. And this 144,000, as I said before, they will be significant in the purposes of God as we go forward. Well, what do I want you to understand from this? I want you to understand that no matter how difficult times may be, no matter how great opposition to the gospel may be, God has, God has people whom he has set apart for his service. And as I said in my, in my opening, I, I ask you the question, yes, he'll have people on that day. Does he have people in our day? In this church, does he have people set apart by way of our own calling and our own sense of responsibility before God that we will do his will in our day? Oh, that God may, that we may see an increase of this more and more. That we might kind of approach the day with a, with a conviction that on this day is the day that God has given me to serve our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying to you, he has these people today. Why will we not be among that people? Why should we be a church that refuses to serve Jesus Christ in our day? Shouldn't we take a stand for him in our day? We must, we should. And so again, the point that I want you to see from the second point in this chapter is that God will always have a people set apart for his service. The next thing I want you to see in this passage of scripture is that God will also <clears throat> have a people who will always be worshiping him even in the most trying of times. Come down again and we can, we can let, we'll read through, let's read through verses, uh, uh, let's read through verses um, Five and following, I believe it is here in chapter. Well, we'll go we'll go down immediately to uh, to verse nine. So again, let me so let me set this. Let me set the context here. So we have the sealed group of one hundred forty four thousand. This sealed group of one hundred forty four thousand again are set for the service of God. The service of God in the context here of Revelation chapter seven, as I believe it, is the preaching of the gospel in these times of tribulation. And the effect of their, of their ministry is brought to our attention in verses 9 and following. Now, as a result of these men sealed and serving and preaching the gospel, what happened? Look at verse 9. And after this, I, behold, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindred, the people of tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palms in their hands. Do you understand what's happening here? There are people now who are worshiping God Almighty through the ministry of, that, of those that were sealed and set aside. And that, that brings us back to, our, to kind of our theme. That not only will God always have a, a serving people who are sealed for that purpose, God will also have a worshiping, a worshiping people who are saved by the blood of the Lamb. We'll develop this as we go forward. But I want you to see here, notice again this beautiful picture of the redeemed body of Jesus Christ. 
And in one sense, we can say this is, even though I believe that this is specific to, to individuals that will be saved in the time of the tribulation, this is very indicative of the nature of the church. Look at the church. And I beheld a great multitude. We may think that we're all alone. We're not. A great multitude, again, which no man can number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. Again, this, this great reality of the, of the diverse nature of the church of Jesus Christ. These voices blending together. And there they are. They are, they are given to worship and they are prepared for worship. Did you see that? They are given white robes and there are palms in their hand. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Two things I want you to see here. They cried saying, Salvation unto our God. Were they praying that God would be saved? Absolutely not. They were ascribing every element of their salvation to God and to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the church does. We sing about what Jesus Christ has done for our souls. When all is said and done, we realize we're, we're not saved by our own strength. In salvation, God enlists us. God takes everything that he, has, that he has placed in us and uses that for his glory. But when we're saved, we're not saved because of ourselves. We sing salvation unto, the, unto God and unto the Lamb. Why? Because God and the Lamb are the very means whereby you and I are saved. And so this innumerable multitude, this beautiful group of saved individuals, there are presented reminding us that even in the worst of times, God will have a saved people who worship him. Is that you? Is that me? Is that us? We can make a case here this morning. We see a, we see a beautiful diversity here this morning, do we not? But let's not get kind of just stuck on that. Let's ask ourselves the question, in this beautiful diversity, what are we doing? Are we singing the praises of God and of the Lamb? Or are we ascribing salvation unto our God? Not by way of saying that we hope that God would be saved, perish, I thought that's ridiculous, that's foolishness. But everything about salvation we ascribe to God. And so again, here is this, here is this group reminding us that even in the worst of times, even in times of, of tribulation and of great tribulation, God will have a people who are worshiping him. Now again, when I when I speak about these things, I want you to I want you to know and I want you to understand that that uh, this is a saved group. Now it first comes to us by way of their worship, but you have to understand that th this is a saved group. Look again there, coming down to verses uh, uh, verse thirteen, and one of the elders answered unto saying unto me, and uh, what are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And John answers verse 14, and I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation. You see, this is one of the time markers, I believe, that's here present in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. It tells us that, that we're looking at the time of tribulation here. These are those which come out of great tribulation. Listen to this. And have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the vital factor. This is the thing upon which everything hinges. And I ask you the question again. Have your sins been made white in the blood of the Lamb? Have, you wa or, 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 have your sins been washed away in that cleansing blood? You see, there is no salvation apart from the death of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from the application of His blood to your soul. And you might ask yourself the question, you might ask me the question, well, how do I do that? How is the blood applied to my soul? I don't see any physical blood. Am I to take here the, uh, the, the, the wine that's in the cup and pour it upon me? No, this is foolishness. It is the embracing by faith. It is looking to what the Word of God says about you and at the end of the day saying, that's true. Very, in a very real way, what is faith? Faith in, faith in a very real way is taking God's side against myself. God declared me to be a sinner. And what did I say? No, no, not me. 
You know, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for this. And you don't know my circumstances. And if you, and if you wouldn't have done this, and if this didn't happen to me, I would have been just fine. That's not what faith does. Faith comes broken before God. And faith hears the declaration of God against the soul. And faith says, amen, it's true. It's true. And you're dealing with me more tenderly than you should. But everything is true here. But that's not all that happens. God wonderfully shows us the provision that he has made for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Will you embrace this Savior by faith? Will you turn from sin and let Jesus Christ again, bring Jesus Christ to that place where he is saving you? Oh, you see, all those who received him, the Bible tells us, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Will you embrace the Savior by faith? So there are saved people, number one. Number two, there are worshiping people. And the beautiful thing about their worship is that we see that they are joined by angels. Did you see that in verse, uh, in, in verse 11? Look at verse 11. And all the angels stood around about the throne, and all the elders and the four beasts fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. The angels, they don't need to be saved, but when they hear the church speaking about the salvation that God provides, they say amen to that. And here they are, the, this, this angelic group joining in with this redeemed, with this uh, redeemed humanity. You know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to think of the fact that even in our small numbers, we are joined by a great multitude of, of angels in heaven worshiping and glorifying God. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to go off. I don't want to get off on the deep end on, on angels and everything else. But there's a reality here. This morning when 10 o'clock came around, I looked out on the congregation. I said, boy, there's more visitors here than, our, than regular people here this morning. I thought, well, at least, at least the visitors were they're joining in with the, with, with, with the regular members that are here. There's a joining in. And it's the same thing with the, with the, with, with the church of Jesus Christ, sometimes seeming, seemingly so small, yet in their worship of God, they are attended by, with the angels, singing glory and praise to God Almighty as well. Your voices join together with their voices, singing glory and honor and thanksgiving to our great God and our Savior. The next thing I want you to see about this, this, this saved people that God always has, even in the worst of times, the next thing I want you to see is that they are particularly blessed people. And their blessing, their blessing is marked by, by at least two things. Number one, their blessing is marked by the fact that, by the fact that they are shepherded by Christ. Did you see that in the passage there? There they are, and, and again, verse 15, they, they, they're before the throne of God, and we might even say that this constitutes their blessing as well. They can stand before God Almighty. They serve Him night and day in His temple. Again, they share, and God dwells among them. But look here in verse 16, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light upon them, nor any heat. Why is this brought out? Because I, I, I believe that what was happening to those, this class of individuals who were saved, they suffered mightily for the cause of Christ. And now the good shepherd, the great shepherd is saying to them, no more thirsting, no more hungering, no more hardships. You see, Jesus Christ in eternity shepherds his people. He never leaves off being the shepherd of his people. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the lamb that is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and he shall lead them unto living fountains of waters. This is a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there they were one time in the, in the, in the presence of their enemies. Oh, they, and it seemed as though they were overwhelmed. And Jesus Christ is saying, now I will set before you a table in the presence of all your enemies whom I have overcome. Jesus Christ is doing that. 
Jesus Christ is leading them to, again to these, to these still waters and these quiet pastures. No more suffering for the people of God. And let the world think it's a fairy tale. This is what God has revealed in his word. And does, and, and does the witness of the Spirit spring up in your heart when you read these things? You see, these are one of these marks of the work of the Spirit of God within us. <clears throat> so here they are. They are. These are our people who are shepherded by Christ. But there's one more blessing that they have. And that blessing is found at the end of verse 17. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This group, the people of God who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, this group, again, has God the Father himself comforting them. Can I say it this way? Here is God wiping all their tears from their eyes. Do you know that your tears are precious before God? Do you know that the first time we see a reference to human tears in Scripture, it's the tears that Hezekiah is, 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 is crying uh, when he learns that he, will, that he will be put to death, that he will, he, will, he will shortly die. And God in grace, now again, there's a lot of other things that have to be said about that. I just want you to see that God noted Hezekiah's tears. 2 Kings chapter 20, I believe, it says specifically, I have seen thy tears. God gives special regard to your tears. Do you know that this promise that God shall wipe away tears is not only found here in the seventh chapter, it's repeated in chapter 21, 20, chapter 21, verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And so here we are in the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Much is important by way of the theology of the book. Much is important by way of the chronology of how we understand end times. But can I ask you once again to, to engage that from, a, from the standpoint of, of your enlightened, uh, uh, biblically informed mind? But can I also ask you to allow this passage of scripture to bring you on the platform that this truth creates and to understand that God will always have a people who will serve him even in the worst of times. And he will always have a people that shall worship him and that shall be saved even in the worst of times. My brothers and sisters, this is your God and this is your Savior. And that Savior who shepherds his people shepherds you to a table whereby you can remember the price that he paid for your salvation and my salvation. Well, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises contained therein. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our prayers are, and our tears are noted by you and are precious to you but we thank you even more so, Father, if we can say it that way, for that shepherding ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.